I do feel like there's that tension there, but at the same time, there seems to be this desire to get something out of this, to bring people together again, and to talk about the big picture issues that we, for so long, not been talking about. The open, rules-based trading system is under pressure. As countries increasingly seek to leverage economic interdependence for geopolitical gain, what does it mean for the future of globalization? Will Russia's war in Ukraine mark a watershed moment? And with multilateral trade governance at its weakest in decades, how can the system adapt to these challenges and to the impact of climate change? These are some of the issues explored by the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortovec. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands and the host of the Global Trade Series. And we are coming to you live on the margins of the WTO Public Forum in Geneva, where hundreds of delegates and trade experts from around the globe have gathered for a couple of days of discussions on some of the key issues impacting global trade today. Now, the theme of this year's Public Forum is towards a sustainable and inclusive recovery. And we're going to talk about a very exciting dimension of trade policy where a lot is happening indeed that connects to that theme very nicely, namely how to use trade policy to meet the climate challenge. And I'm joined here in Geneva by Inu Manak, a trade expert from the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., and Jennifer Hillman, professor at, at Georgetown Law, a friend of the AIG Global Trade Series, and co-director of a new program at the law school called the Center on Inclusive Trade and Development. It's great to have you both here. So before we address the topic at hand, I, I have to say that it is really quite refreshing to have this conversation face-to-face -face instead of screen-to-screen. -screen. And it is great to be in Geneva. And I, I just wanted to start off by asking both of you what your impressions of the public forum have been so far. Jennifer. Well, I'm struck by the very stark contrast because I was also here last year when I would say 90% of it was not in person and it had a very quiet, one would almost say dead feeling to it. And that is the complete opposite of this year. This year, there's some 3,500 people here, 140 panels going on simultaneously. You end up running from room to room. There is a vibrancy in the air that we did not see. The one other thing I would also say is you're seeing a very significant presence from particularly, I would say, American business that was not here last year and arguably was not here in the past. I think there's a sense that maybe things are going to start to move again at the WTO and they want to come in and put some markers down about where the business community wants to see the WTO moving. So they're here in a large presence in order to do that. So you're quite optimistic then. 
I would say there is a very divergent views. I would say there's a good deal of optimism that the MC12, the outcome of the most recent ministerial meeting, which many describe as a, as a success, that it came away with a number of significant agreements and most importantly came away with an action plan about how to reform the WTO, there's a whole school of thought that is very optimistic. And then there is an entire wing that is extremely skeptic, skeptical about where the WTO is headed. And, and some would say this was a Band-Aid on a dying patient that came out of MC12. And what we are really seeing is the last throes of the end of the WTO. Right. I, mean, I think that's where you see. But at least the public forum is gathering a lot of attention. Inu, what's, what's been your impression so far? I think it's been fairly positive. You know, you see a lot of engagement online in particular on this forum. Twitter has been a lively space for discussing some of the panels that have been going on. And I agree with Jennifer that there is a vibrancy and energy there that's taken on from MC12. I think that the one thing that's important to keep in mind is that this is the beginning of the marathon, mm. right? I think people are feeling like, yeah, we started running. Let's keep going. Let's keep that momentum going. But again, there are those people also waiting on the sidelines saying, mm, I don't know if you guys are going to make it. So I do feel like there's that tension there. But at the same time, there seems to be this desire to get something out of this, to bring people together again, and to talk about the big picture issues that we for so long not been talking about. So I'm generally optimistic, but I think we still have a a long way to go. Right. Okay. So let's let's dive in on a topic where we may have a, a long way to go indeed. And that's and that's this really fascinating area where trade and climate policy meets. And it's it's a very dynamic area, I have to say. There's a lot of attention, a lot of panels, of course, lots of discussion at the highest political levels. And given the climate challenge we face is crucially important. Now the day before yesterday, both of you spoke on a panel at the WTO public forum on this same topic. And I want to pick up on some of the things that I heard you raise there. Now, the exam questions that I defined, I guess, are the following. How can we use trade policy to lower emissions? How can we reduce the global emissions embedded in internationally traded goods? And how to address carbon leakage so we don't penalize industries that produce goods in a more sustainable way without resorting to protectionism? That, in my mind, is sort of the, the big questions to face. But more broadly, yes, the challenge is how can we use the tools of trade policy, standard setting, subsidies, levies, trade agreements, unilateral, bilateral, and multilateral efforts to fight climate change. Now, I want to address a number of those issues. And Jennifer, perhaps to get us started, what in your view is the main challenge we face when bringing the trade world and the climate world together? To me, the hardest part of it is that at some level, you have to draw a line between what is fundamentally a protectionist measure and what is fundamentally a climate change measure. And that I think that line may move over time and there may be a lot more leeway to accept measures that have some degree of protectionism, but are in the main a climate change measure. Our line may be moving, but at, at some basic level, trade policy is going to have to draw that line. And the trick for the WTO or whoever it is, is who, when, and where do you draw that line? And how do you give more leeway, more flexibility, more room on the climate change side than we've seen in the past? Right. And we see that playing out 
as we speak in, in particularly inside the European Union, where the EU has taken the leap forward to, to introduce a carbon measure, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which some outsiders have described as, as a protectionist measure. And just to introduce the carbon border adjustment mechanism, this is a, a carbon levy which charges a, a fee or a, or a tax on, on imports of goods like steel, iron, aluminium, cement, fertilizer, electricity from countries that do not have a carbon price or an emissions trading system similar to the EU. Now, the European Parliament says that this is a climate measure, not a tool to level the playing field, not a, not a trade tool, if you, if you will, and certainly not protectionism, but it has raised eyebrows across the globe, not in the least in the United States, where the initial reaction was a bit, well, should we say tepid, but it seems to have become slightly more open to considering similar options. Inu, where, where do you see the discussion in the U.S. standing on on CBAM, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, and carbon adjustments in general as a way to, to use trade to, to meet climate objectives? I would say generally the United States has been pretty lukewarm towards using this mechanism and until recently has not been really paying attention to what the EU has been doing. But that might change depending on what happens to the CBAM. We don't know what the final form is going to look like. And there could be some things that could change the calculation in the United States of whether we should really pay attention to it. But I would say, you know, when you're looking at what's going on in the U.S. right now on this issue, the U.S. has a very different approach mm. to a fighting climate change. It's not this idea that a carbon tax is not really caught on. There has been debate in Congress, but it really has got to the point where there's a lot of bipartisan support for it. Instead, the U.S. approach has been regulatory. It has been through subsidization. If you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, that is about subsidizing green energy to fight climate change. Uh, low emission energy sources, for example, $370 billion of spending and tax credits are going into that. And then the electric vehicle tax credit, which we can get into later. But the fact is the United States has a very different approach than what the EU is doing. There is a hint, though, and we, we didn't see it come into the Inflation Reduction Act, but there was a bill called the Clean Competition Act that was potentially going to be in there and it got taken out at the last minute. But it's an, a very narrow domestic carbon tax focused on a set of covered goods that participate in the Environmental Protection Agency's Greenhouse Gas Reduction Program. So this is things like fossil fuels, aluminum, iron and steel, pulp and paper. So fairly comparable to what's in, 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 in the EU CBAM. Yes. So the, a lot of this was, was done thinking about what the Europeans were doing. And this is where this, this bill came from. And it's a bipartisan bill that has lots of bipartisan support, but it's not clear if this will stand alone and make it somewhere within Congress. So I think that there, there is some division in the United States about whether we should be doing this. And the big problem is that in the U.S., we usually have a border adjustment but we're not thinking about a domestic price on carbon. And that's usually detached, but this is putting it together. Uh, so we'll see where this goes, but it's not clear to me that there's a lot of support. And I would only underscore, and just to put some numbers on it, part of the reason why the United States did not initially react very strongly to the European Commission's proposal for a CBAM is that if you looked at the numbers, it would have applied to a grand total of $2.72 billion worth of U.S. exports, so not very much. The European Parliament has added chemicals and plastics into the mix of what would be coming covered by the CBAM. Well, all of a sudden then, that means 
$20.6 billion worth of U.S. exports are affected. That number gets everyone's attention. So you will now start to see, I think, a whole U.S. effort to think about whether or not there is a challenge that the United States should be making against the European CBAM, or again, alternatively, whether the United States should copy what the European Union is doing and say, okay, if you're going to charge us a tax, we're going to charge you a tax and start putting on our own form of a CBAM. Or you could go down the optimistic route or the win-win route and say you do this together uh, and you charge a similar price. Is that in the land of fairy tales or or is there a willingness on the side of the Americans and the Europeans, you think, to, to compare notes to see how these two initiatives could be connected? In theory, that is exactly what's happening just in the steel and the aluminum sector, because there is ongoing right now this idea of creating a green steel, green aluminum initiative. It comes from a very different place. It Mm. comes because the United States imposed a 25% tariff on steel, a 10% tariff on aluminum in the name of national security. And then the European Union, quite understandably, objected. Mm. that The last they checked, they were not a national security threat to the United States. They were a NATO ally. Why was the United States imposing a tariff in the name of national security? Ultimately, an agreement worked out. And part of that agreement is that the United States is replacing the tariffs instead with a quota. But the other part of it was to try to form this green steel, green aluminum alliance. We don't know how it's going to really come out. But in general, the notion is that there would be agreed upon between the United States and the EU some definition of what is low carbon steel or low carbon aluminum or green steel or green aluminum, and and that any steel or aluminum that trades between us that fits that definition doesn't pay any additional tax, doesn't have any other restriction on it, but that we would agree together to charge everybody else some kind of a tariff or some kind of a restriction for any steel or aluminum that does not meet our definition of Green. That's interesting. Um, and of course, we're not there yet, but at least the impression I'm getting is that there is also a willingness in the United States to think about carbon levies or, or carbon taxes, not just from a climate perspective, but also from a, shall we call it a national security perspective, that there's a, a willingness or a constituency in, in, in the U.S. that doesn't want to buy steel from China not just because it's polluting, but also because of the national security concerns attached to that. I think you're absolutely right there. And I I don't even think it's just one small constituency. I think when it comes to national security issues in trade, there is bipartisan consensus that you can link national security to a a number of different trade issues. This could be one of them that we'll see emerge. And, And you're right, a lot of it is focused on China. China's a heavy polluter. And I think this is something that There are many people in Congress who have been wanting to tackle this, and this might be one avenue to do so. How that shapes up, it's not entirely clear yet. But anything that looks discriminatory, though, and is targeted in China is just not going to fly in the long run. Right. But uh, the end result would be that if, say, a coordinated transatlantic border adjustment levy is reached, that whether you take the left course or the right course, you end up in the same space. My sense is all of the initiatives that have been talked about in some way would be done in the name of climate change, but the effect of them would be heavily to make it more 
expensive for Chinese goods to be imported into either the European Union or the United States. So they have a lot of appeal to all the companies that have been complaining that they've been having to compete with unfairly traded goods from China. And whether they're unfairly traded because they're dumped or subsidized or whether they're unfairly traded because they're dirty, the perception is you are asking us to compete unfairly with goods coming in from China when we have to bear the cost of green regulations, the cost of the emissions trading system in Europe. The argument is all our manufacturers are bearing a huge number of costs that the Chinese producers are not bearing, and therefore it is okay. It is somehow fair. It is leveling the playing field in order to put whatever this carbon adjustment may be on those goods is perceived by most of the industry in both the United States and the Europe and the European Union is not only appropriate, but absolutely justified as a way to level the playing field. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue to talk about how to use trade policy to meet the climate challenge. As the global economy emerges from the pandemic and intensifying regulatory competition is further straining the open trading system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. We're back from our break and I'm joined by Inu Manak and Jennifer Hillman to discuss how to use trade policy to meet the climate challenge. Let's say that the US and the EU agree to agree and they move towards this principled position that they want to coordinate and reach a common levy. What are the obstacles to getting there? I mean, how do you do this in practice? Is this simply a question of putting a number of trade negotiators in a room and then agreeing a, a common carbon price? It can't be that simple. You know, what, what needs to be done? Gosh, there, there are a lot of challenges in negotiating this. I think that the biggest one is measurement. How do you decide what that price is and how you're going to measure carbon content in what it is that you want to tax, right? And so one of the issues is the fact that we can have different ways of measuring the greenhouse gas emission content of any product, but we need to align those. And that's where international standards come in and we need to work on developing more international standards in this area. Or what we need to do is have the US and the EU agree to a common approach. Now, that may sound generally easy in theory, but in practice, when it comes to standardization and deciding on measurements, this is a very hard thing to do. Part of it is because one of the things that you'll have companies fighting for is the fact that maybe there's a certain measurement, makes them look a little better. We can definitely see that there's going to be some industry finagling to get the right measurement out there for them. So I just I don't know how we're going to get there in the end on this issue, but I do think it's possible as long as we sit down and we share the data. But the problem is 
point is we don't have a lot of clear data right now on how everyone is potentially going to measure this. And so I think that's step one before we sit down. And and are there any precedents that we can look to to guide us here? Well, so, it, you know, it's interesting if you look at what's happening right now. Again, so you think about it, you know, most the United States and the European Union and many other countries have regulated clean air for many, many, many years. So we do have a lot of data that connects around what any given company is contributing or not to meeting clean air standards. So yes, there is some precedent there, but if you step back and look at where we are in in the climate change context, we in the United States and Europe are going down two really different paths. Because if the reason why you're reporting your data is to meet in the United States now, securities and exchange standards, mm. environment, sustainable and, and, and governance goals, corporate wide or again, corporate reporting standards to shareholders. What you look at when you do that is you measure on what is referred to as a life cycle basis, the entire life cycle. And you're looking at those numbers on a corporate wide basis. Yeah. That's totally different than if you want to know how much greenhouse gases are in this single ton of steel. Those are completely different measurements, and you use completely different tools to do that. And we don't even have agreement on which greenhouse gases are we measuring for. Are you including methane or not? Are you including nitrous oxide or not? Are you including there's, – there's not even an agreement – on what constitutes a greenhouse gas. Mm. So we just start right there as a point of departure to some degree. Then you also have the issue of how far downstream or upstream do you go? Are you only measuring the amount of greenhouse gases that went into producing in the steel industry, hot hot rolled, I mean, hot melt steel? Or are you continuing to go down the road of then how much is in cold road, how much is in coated steel, how much is in an automobile that is made with a lot of steel? Where are you cutting off the measurement is, again, something that would have to be agreed upon in order to come up with a standard. Yeah. And um, you need that at a corporate level? Or can well, you do in this theory, sector you need wide? it at a, again. So again, this is another very big point of contention. Doing it at a corporate wide level has some advantages because if you don't do it at a corporate wide level, if you do it at an individual facility level, to just say, then what will get exported is the cleanest the yep. material out of the clean facility because it won't pay a very high carbon tax. What will stay at home is all the dirty material and you have moved the needle not at all in yeah. fighting climate change. So in general, the presumption is you would be better off doing it at a corporate-wide level or a sectoral level. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for that little deep dive into the, the practical difficulties that we would run up against. Of course, that's not a reason not to try to, to fix this and to, to, to get a grip on the carbon content. And let's say that we're able to do this. Let's say that the US and the EU are able to reach that agreement. What kind of impact would that have internationally? Is that then the stepping stone to something that's sometimes being called a carbon club? I know that the G7 recently mentioned it in its joint statement or its communique, I should say. What... What would it do in terms of trade flows? What's the next step? I think it would certainly have a major impact, but I would think that the one thing that's true across when you're talking about international trade negotiations of any kind, if the U.S. and EU agree, everyone usually gets on board. You know, yeah. I think that the, the, the two uh, players that are most difficult to come to agreement on anything, and we do have varying approaches to how we deal with things. So I think that if we do get an agreement, I think this is 
certainly something that is a pie in the sky, maybe a little bit, but there's a possibility we'll get there. And if we do, I think we're likely to see other G7 countries get involved really quickly. We'll probably see others in the G20 maybe start to join in, and then there'll be discussions about how big we make this. But defining who's in the club and who's out of the club is going to be really important, deciding where trade is going to be diverted if this goes into place. Right, but Europeans would point out, well, even though CBAM is almost a Across the finish line. We've already seen positive movement from South Korea, from Turkey in terms of adopting similar emissions trading systems. So the EU might say, well, we're big enough to bring everyone along. This idea of carbon clubs keeps being entertained. And I'm not really sure, Jennifer, do you have a, a grasp on what, what a carbon club would mean in practice? I think there is no real definition because there, it's different depending on who's sort of describing it. But I think the general concept is that everybody within the club does not charge any additional tariffs or any additional restrictions on trade among the members of the club in all of the products that are the subject to the club, whether that's steel, aluminum, chemicals, whatever the club decides don't charge any any extra duties on each other and agree that you are all at some equivalent level of greenness such that you don't charge anything and you let in others as long as they commit to come up to your level of greenness and everything else pays whatever the carbon price is to come into all of the markets of the members of the club. I mean, that's the theory behind it. And obviously the idea behind it is then that puts tremendous pressure on everybody that's outside of the club right. to try to get green enough that they can get into the club and or to try to make significant changes in their own production processes so that they are no longer outside. That's the theory. That's the theory. And then there's the practice. If you're in an emerging economy exporting to either the European Union or, or any member in that club, you're probably quite worried. I would think you'd be worried, yes. And it's going to be something that I think anyone who creates some sort of climate club is going to have to grapple with is how do you bring developing countries, emerging markets on board to something like this and how do they adjust to doing this? So I, it's a capacity issue, certainly, which is a big part of it. But then also it's just about thinking how we structure any sort of climate club at the beginning to involve these countries in that process so that they have a seat at the table early on. But there has to be an incentive to get them on board as well. And I don't know if the EU is developing enough of those incentives. Right. One of the incentives that was created within this U these U.S. proposals in the Congress that hasn't moved very far, but was the idea of have having a significant portion of the revenue that is raised by this carbon border adjustment go directly to the developing countries in order to help them with adaptation and mitigation efforts. And I think that is at least a, a good place to think about starting. If you're going to create a carbon club, make sure that a significant amount of the revenue ends up going out to those that need the help with decarbonization. All right. But it does feel like a, a second best option that if you look at the alternative of doing this at the multilateral level, at sort of the WTO. But what are the chances? In, in other words, you know, could you imagine a scenario where a CO2 price is ultimately set at the forum just a couple of hundred meters from where we're sitting today? 
I don't know if the WTO is the place where that's going to happen, but I think the WTO is a useful forum for discussing the practices that other members are thinking about in setting that carbon price. So, for example, we have the Committee on the Trade and Environment, which is a great forum to discuss these practices. We also have the Technical Barriers to Trade Committee, which is tied to its namesake agreement, where we can discuss measures that members are taking that could be regulating carbon. Now, I think there we can have broader discussions on where there are divergences in our approaches, where we can reference to international standards to avoid fragmentation in approaches, and how we can try to figure out data sharing on all the things that we're doing, particularly data sharing between companies and the governments so that we can actually create some sort of clear measurement on all this. And of course, that's going to have to get into the fact that we're going to deal with data that maybe some companies do not want to share or cannot share for lots of reasons. So I I think that that's something that we'll have to discuss within the WTO at some point. And certainly it's going to be discussed in terms of the technical barriers to trade that are created by members taking climate measures that are a barrier to trade in this way. So do I understand it correctly that the TBT, the technical barriers to trade agreement, would be the place where countries would go to to complain about the EU's CBAM? They certainly can. And uh, there's something called specific trade concerns within the TBT committee where members can raise issue with measures that other members are taking. And by the nature of the TBT agreement, that other member has to respond and explain themselves and what they're doing. So it is a place where you can have these discussions. But aside from that one-on-one sort of raising the issue, you can have broader thematic discussions that say, hey, let's all talk about Mm -hmm. what best practices we're developing in the measurement of emissions and let's share those breast practices so we make sure that everybody's on the same page. Because at the end of the day, if we're not using the same yardstick of measurement, then we're just going to get a hodgepodge of different rules that are just not going to jam together. So that's the big thing that I think the TBT committee can do and also the Committee on Trade and Environment as well. And of course, this is one of the things where the jury is still very much out in, in Brussels, whether the ultimate agreement on CBAM is going to be WTO compatible or not. Jennifer, where, what do you see as the potential of using trade, basically using the WTO to address climate policy and uh, climate change concerns? Well, on the, on the CBAM itself, I mean, my own view is I think the European Union has been very careful to try to design a system that would be viewed as WTO compliant by making it very clear that the amount that the import has to pay is the equivalent to the amount that the EU producer had to pay under the ETS. And that's the basic test at the WTO. Are you discriminating against imports? So if a a European steel producer had to pay 50 euros a ton and the import has to pay 50 euros a ton, the argument would be there is no discrimination. And so therefore there's not a violation. And I do think that European Union has worked really hard to try to make sure that their CBAM mirrors the rules of the WTO. But your question to me goes to a much bigger picture issue that is out there in the air here at the public forum, which is, are we only using the trade rules to, in essence, define and carve out what is protectionist from what is climate change? Or can we actually think about how do we use trade deals Mm. to affirmatively make a contribution to fighting climate change? And that's a much harder question that goes way beyond CBAM, because there it really goes to, you know, can we use trade rules to promote technology transfer? Can we use trade tools to affirmatively promote 
green subsidies, support for decarbonization? Can we affirmatively create standards that would promote mm. the transfer and, and the movement of technologies around decarbonization? A whole panoply of trade tools that are out there that are more on the affirmative side rather than just this drawing a line between what's protectionist and what's not. And Inu, I see you nodding. Where is that conversation in the WTO today? So right now, where a lot of this is happening is within a framework called the Trade and Environmental Sustainability Structured Discussions. I know that's a mouthful, <laughs> but the short is TESD. And this began in 2020 with a group of 50 members. And after MC12, there was a commitment that all the membership would work through the TESD discussions to advance discussions in some areas like fossil fuel subsidies, plastics, pollution, and then climate change generally, um, including also environmental goods and services trade. Mm -hmm. So there is energy within the WTO to talk about this. There are different tracks within the TESD discussions to advance that. I think one place that we really should be moving ahead is in the fossil fuel subsidies area to rein in those subsidies that are inefficient. The big question right now for the members talking about fossil fuel subsidy reform is what is an inefficient fossil fuel yeah. subsidy? This seems like it should be easy to define, but it's far more complicated than that, right? This is not just about producer subsidies. You know, people imagine that fossil fuel subsidies are basically going to big oil companies that are drilling, uh, but it's also about consumers as well. You know, you look at what happened uh, when oil prices went up very recently with the, the war in Ukraine, and the response from yeah. policymakers was to say, we need to find a way to keep the prices down. President yeah. Biden said, lower the price at the pump. Now, if people start feeling heating bills going up, gas prices going up, this is something that's going to be difficult to build support for fossil fuel subsidy reform if that's in the basket of subsidies we consider. So it's a difficult discussion to have at the WTO, but one that's worth having and defining. What is an inefficient fossil fuel subsidy? Right. And, and the flip side of the coin is what are green subsidies? So is there, and, and Jennifer, I, I know this is a topic that you're passionate about. Is there room, you see, is there oxygen in, in the WTO to start talking about green boxing, green subsidies? I think yes, but I don't think it's going to be an easy discussion. Um, I think if you go back, way back, you know, originally when the subsidies agreement was written in 1995, there was a green box. You know, there was a carve out for subsidies that were for R&D and for environmental purposes. They were considered not actionable. You can't complain about them. You can't bring any actions about them. Those provisions lapsed. The issue is whether you could bring back that idea and you wouldn't even have to change the text. You're just revitalizing the language that was already there. And that's one option, I think, that is under some consideration. The other option that's at least getting some beginning of a discussion is whether you should do for green subsidies what was done in the agriculture area, which is to create effectively a definition of what is in the green box. And if it's in the green box, again, that means it's not actionable. You can't complain about it. You can't put a countervailing duty on it. You don't challenge it. You have a then middle box of amber subsidies, yellow subsidies, where if they are causing harm to another country, yes, you can still continue to bring action. And then you have over here a red box subsidies that would largely be these kind of fossil fuel subsidies or other subsidies that would be considered prohibited under the WTO rules because they are unduly contributing to climate change. And given the the positive momentum that we're seeing coming out of the WTO at MC12, 
recently. Do you expect this to be perhaps not top of agenda, but at least on the agenda looking at MC13? I think it is going to be on the agenda on MC13. Now, whether the agenda means a little formal amendment to the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures is a little bit less clear. What was interesting is to see the example that comes out of what happened in the fish subsidies negotiations, because in those negotiations, at the end of the day, what that agreement says is, here are a list of subsidies that we are deeming to be prohibited subsidies. So it is effectively amending the subsidies agreement by adding a new category to what is a prohibited subsidy without actually amending the text, but you're simply definitionally adding more things into the red box that is already there. I can absolutely imagine coming out of MC13 something along those lines, if we can do what Inu has described, which is try to figure out what is an inefficient fossil fuel subsidy, then you start adding to that red box. Once you start adding to the red box, the discussion will then come about should we also be revitalizing what is already in the text, which is the notion of a green box. And I would just emphasize something that Jennifer said in terms of putting something in the red box, the prohibited subsidies. That's what the fisheries agreement showed us could still happen. We have the ability to do this. It's the first time we've actually added to the list of prohibited subsidies. So there is an ability of members to come together and make the compromise, decide what they need to do. Can they do it in fossil fuel? I think they probably can. It's just a matter of rolling up their sleeves again and trying to eke this out. But it needs all the players at the table to make that happen. And notably, the United States is not part of the fossil fuel subsidy negotiations right now. You mentioned the United States. and You also mentioned earlier the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, you know, I have to ask this because I know that it's getting a lot of attention in Europe, which is in the Inflation Reduction Act, there is there's a lot of subsidies granted, particularly also to electric vehicles and, and, and batteries that have a trade distorting impact. It's viewed as not entirely U.S. protectionism, but with there's a protectionist sort of smell around it. How would you look at the use of those types of subsidies that have a, a noble intention? It's about building a sustainable and, and green fleet of cars. But still, it has a trade distortion, dis- distortioning impact. What's your view on that? Well, I would say if we're speaking just about the Inflation Reduction Act and the U.S. approach to this, you can't disentangle climate policy from industrial policy. And this is where it becomes a little problematic, right? I think that President Biden made clear early on that you need to build EVs in America. I think originally it was just about creating the cars in the U.S. And then Canada said, hey, by the way, we have an auto supply chain. Let's try to expand this to North America as well. The challenge here is the fact that when you look at the way the measure is currently structured, the law in in Congress, and we're going to have to see what the implementation looks like. But right now, it might appear discriminatory, but the fact is it's saying that you just need to assemble the vehicles in either Canada, United States, or Mexico. Where those parts come from that go into the vehicles is not discriminatory, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not traditionally how you might think about a local content requirement that would be prohibited under WTO rules. Now, there are some countries that are saying, hey, this is definitely discriminatory because it's a de facto discrimination. It's going to make companies that are in the U.S. source all their products within the North 
North American market. And that might be true, but we have to see exactly what the implementing rules end up mm-hmm. being. And that we'll find out in a couple of months. But I think that this does raise big questions about whether or not this is something other countries are also going to pursue and maybe a little bit more openly in a discriminatory manner. So I think it does raise some questions and it's rubbed some of our allies the wrong way. Well, it it may be that the Europeans are overreacting, but to me, it also shows how difficult and, and sensitive this policy space is, where there is probably, you know, genuine agreement with the notion that we have to make, again, the car fleet uh, sustainable and green and that electric vehicles are the way to go. At the same time, there's this vibe of, okay, let's do this together, together with the transatlantic partners, because as you say, Inu, if the US and the EU move together, actually, the rest will generally follow. And then these domestic pieces of, of legislation are put forward that all of a sudden have a risk of, of changing the lens, if you will, and focusing on the trade policy dynamic rather than on the climate impact. And, and to me, again, I, I certainly understand the view coming out of Europe, but I step back and say, this barely passed. I mean, it was literally not one vote to spare in the Senate. And it is going to be always this compromise between what do you need for to satisfy your domestic political constituency in order to get anything done. And I think it needs to be said, this is the single largest piece of climate change legislation ever passed by the United States. And so I think to some degree, there's the hope that Europe will recognize that you should at some level be happy that the United States is joining the fight against climate change, is taking serious action in order to reduce our GHG emissions. And this is designed to be more than a 40% reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions as a result of this one single piece of legislation. And to some degree, this notion of creating jobs in America and pushing EVs in a communities that often are not so much in support of and may not even be believers in climate change. I mean, this was a very tight line to walk by the Biden team to get this done. And so I do think there there is going to be in every country in the world some kind of trade-offs between what do they need as a political matter to get enough buy-in to get climate change legislation through their domestic legislatures compared to what are the ideal goals of either the WTO or the climate community. And there's going to be a lot of these compromises that are going to have to come up. And this is why I say at some level, that line between what is protectionist and what is climate change is going to have to be a lot more flexible than it's been in the past. And so even if this is technically a violation Really, Europe, do you want to seriously challenge this? Or would you rather see the United States move ahead with serious climate change action? And that is a terrific note to end on, because unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. Jennifer Hillman, Inu Manak, thank you very, very much for your time, for sharing your insights with me, and for joining me here in Geneva at the WTO Public Forum. If you are interested in the other expert conversations that are a part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2022, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2022 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, 
the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute France, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2022 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.